Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief for Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, the 30th of June. Good to have you on board, everybody. As always, can't believe that uh, 2023 is half over already. What a man, it's gone by awfully quick. Um, today's show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute since 1873. The members of the Institute have been the foundation of everything we do, from Proceedings Magazine to Naval History to events and conferences to our professional books to USNI News. If you're not a member, become a member. Go to usni.org forward slash join. And if you are a member, encourage a shipmate, a fellow Marine, fellow Coastie uh, to become a member today. All right. Well, joining me is my deputy and co-host, uh, Bill Bray, coming online from uh, his house in Annapolis. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things today. Uh, really, the focus is to highlight the July issue of Proceedings, which will be live uh, later today. So it's our annual naval aviation focus. We've got an awesome cover there showing uh, a shooter uh, on board the Nimitz uh, launching a, a Super Hornet uh, just, just last month. The image taken, uh, I think, uh, in May or June of this year. So a very recent image. Uh, the July issue will be distroed at Tailhook. So we've uh, switched up our, uh, our production schedule a little bit. Usually Tailhook is in September and uh, the aviation issue is our September issue. This year they moved Tailhook to August, which is always our Coast Guard issue. So we didn't want to throw out the Coast Guard um, because it's their birthday month. So we moved the aviation issue to July, and uh, we'll be taking a couple thousand copies of the July issue out to Tailhook at the end of August in Reno to put in the bags of uh, all the participants who come to Tailhook. So uh, look forward to seeing a lot of folks, uh, former shipmates and squadron mates uh, at Tailhook at the end of August. Always a good show. And uh, that that's a pretty much uh, it to, to kind of kick things off. Uh, Bill, how's your week going? Week's going well. It's very. Uh, it's a busy week. Um, yesterday, the uh, Naval Academy had induction day, I day, as we call it, and uh, the Naval Institute was down there with many other organizations uh, uh, catering to the parents. It's an amazing thing to see. If 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 anyone has a chance to to witness one one year to watch these twelve hundred or so uh, young Americans come to the Naval Academy with their families and be sent off into the military and that transformation, that first 24 hours, uh, what happens to them. And, um, and then they're off and running. Um, so Pleep Summer is in full swing here in Annapolis. Yeah, indeed it is. And uh, we'll have those, uh, the plebes will start coming through the Naval Institute for an orientation of what we do, what we can do for them, what the Institute's all about. And the uh, the resources that we have for future naval officers uh, at the end of July and the first week of August, we get them come over in groups of about 100 at, at a time. Then we give a presentation to them in the uh, Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. Always fun to do that and talk to uh, uh, the youngest members of the, the Naval Academy and the Navy officer uh, clan. And uh, it's just a little bit hard for me to, uh, to believe that this is the class of 2027 that just yes. entered. So they are 40 years younger than I am. So uh, my class, and in fact, a couple of my classmates have sons and daughters in the class of 2027. So I've seen a lot of emails back and forth uh, and Facebook posting about iDay and about a couple of classmates uh, who had uh, a son or a daughter uh, starting out their, their journey yesterday. 
Um, another thing that was uh, happening this week that was uh, very busy for us is uh, the Modern Day Marine, which is the Marine Corps Association's annual big trade show. That was at the DC Convention Center, downtown Washington. The Naval Institute had a booth there. It was the first time we've had a booth at Modern Day Marine in, in recent years. And uh, great event, three days, uh, lots of, uh, of Marine Corps gear being uh, displayed, speakers, panels. Uh, there was a, I caught a, a panel on uh, training and education in the Marine Corps. A couple of things that jumped out at me from that were, uh, you know, the Marine Corps at, at, at any given time, any given year has about a third of their force. So about 60,000 or so Marines will go through a training program or an education program in the course of a year. So they, they invest very heavily in training and educating Marines. And as uh, the commander, commanding general of uh, training and education command said, we, we train for tonight's fight. And we educate our Marines for the fight that might come two, three, five, ten years down the road. So uh, that was a good one. There was also a, uh, a panel on day two that in included all the deputy commandants. So the deputy commandant for manpower reserve affairs, the deputy commandant for uh, programming and resources, the deputy commandant for uh, combat development and integration, et cetera. And, and they were talking about Force Design 2030, about the plan that uh, the Marine Corps has created and then the budget that has resulted from that and where they're going in terms of programmatics for the next couple of years. Uh, and then yesterday, uh, the last speaker at the event was uh, Assistant Commandant, oh, soon, soon to be, I'll, I'll uh, cross my fingers there, but he's been confirmed by the Senate uh, Armed, Force, Armed Services Committee and now is just waiting for full Senate approval, but General Eric Smith, who's the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps uh, and, and should be the next commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, he uh, spoke, he was the last speaker, and then he came over to our booth and we did an episode of the podcast uh, with him. So that will be posted uh, sometime in the next couple of days. I've just got to post-produce it, but great conversation with him about, about um, uh, manpower training, about um, uh, talent management, really recruiting and retention. <clears throat> the Marines have got a good story to tell about uh, retention. They are they're hitting their marks. They're they're actually uh, exceeding their goals for retention, and they're quite pleased with that. So that was a great conversation. One of the things that I didn't hear that I wanted us to dig in and and maybe get our uh, our news team to dig in on a little bit. There wasn't much conversation about connectors, ship to shore connectors, about the the uh, landing ship medium about how you're going to get Marines from the L-class ships, uh, you know, to the objective, whether that's a, you know, a small island base of uh, expeditionary base operations. Uh, that, dis that discussion, that topic didn't come up, and I didn't see companies exhibiting models of, of connectors. So that, that, I think, is a, uh, a key piece of expeditionary advanced base operations that's got to be figured out got to be figured out quickly. And I want to hear uh, some more about that. So anyway, uh, as you pointed out, I day, busy, busy day, busy week for the Naval Academy, uh, modern day Marine, big thing for the Marines. And now we're going to just uh, chat through some of the some of the feature articles, although there's everything in the in the July issue is terrific. Uh, but some of the features that we were going to um, just highlight for our uh, viewers and listeners today. So Bill, why don't you take the first one? Hey, sure. I, in, in keeping with that uh, 
marine theme, marine spirit, I'll start, even though this is the aviation issue, I'm going to start with uh, an article uh, we uh, published by Sergeant Major Jake Reif, uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, Force modernization has arrived. Uh, uh, Sergeant Major Reif is a, a, a board member. He's the uh, enlisted board member on the, on the proceedings uh, editorial board. Um, he's down in Quantico. He's been very involved in Force uh, Design 2030 and implementing it from a training and doctrine standpoint for several years. And I think he really um, harvests that experience um, to, uh, to write this article. Um, and it's, it, it really is a, an excellent article. He spends some time in, in, uh, in the early part of the article um, explaining that the Marine Corps has always uh, innovated. Um, it has always changed. Um, and this is just another chapter in the Marine Corps story about innovation and changing uh, to be best positioned for the nation. Um, key with this one is getting back to what they call their naval roots um, after two decades uh, or so in uh, kind of as a land army um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which requires certain uh, doctrine. It requires certain equipment, of course, and to, to come back out of that into uh, a more naval uh, focus requires quite a bit of change. Uh, General Berger has spearheaded this. As many know, it has not been uncontroversial. Uh, it has been highly emotional uh, to the point that uh, several retired uh, Marine Corps uh, generals, uh, including a commandant, at least one, um, have been vocal, uh, vocally opposed to it, um, which is very unusual um, to come out and and challenge the sitting commandant in public. Um, and, but as Jake points out is we worked our way through that. The debate is over um, and we are moving out and we're starting to see um, these, these changes really take root uh, on how the Marine Corps would be. The, the, the young officers that were commissioned into the Marine Corps uh, last month in, from here at the Naval Academy and elsewhere in the country are coming into a different Marine Corps than officers uh, 15 uh, years ago, 10 years ago, came into. And this is the Marine Corps they're going to be in for their careers and the focus. So it's really uh, an excellent article. It, yeah, it is. It's a good article, and it, um, it it reinforces some of the things I heard at Modern Day Marine uh, from seniors and also some uh, mid-grade officers who uh, one of the, one of the criti criticisms that's been thrown at force design was the divestment of tanks, right? And um, the, the, the counterpoint to that, that I heard from today's Marines at, at multiple different uh, levels of command and, and rank was, uh, you, you, know, you look at what's been going on in Russia, Ukraine, and you look at the number of tanks that have been destroyed on both sides by small unmanned air systems and, and uh, air, air munitions, right? And the M1A1 tanks that the Marine Corps had that it would need to upgrade or replace with M1A2 tanks with defensive systems and capabilities that could protect against that vertical threat. This, you know, the uh, either uh, a little bomblet or, you know, a, um, a number of different javelin missiles or other missiles 
coming in at the turret at the top, you know, attacking the tank. And you've seen this play out myriad times on uh, on international television uh, to change the tanks that the Marine Corps had and get tanks that could be protected from that capability would have made them a lot more expensive, a lot heavier and a much harder to fit on the ship to shore connectors. Like, for example, uh, the LCAC, the M1A2 tank would have been so heavy that an LCAC could not carry it. So there were some real reasons, nit, you know, nitty gritty reasons that, that the Marine Corps said, All right, we're, we're going to divest from this capability. And they're bringing on some capabilities that are really kind of eye-watering. And as I heard from Jake, and I also heard from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Como mention the fact that today's Marines uh, are, are more lethal at 10 times the range that they were five years ago. So using some of these small UASs, using uh, some standoff weapons that they've brought, using uh, the, the naval strike missile and the nemesis system, uh, they bring capabilities that uh, the Marines of you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago could not have even imagined. So uh, I, I'm pretty convinced, but uh, Jake's article is, uh, is a good one. We'll be interested to see what kind of feedback we get on that one. Um, the next one, the one I wanted to mention, and this is back to the aviation theme, is uh, by a, a young officer, Josh Hanno. And uh, it's uh, Lieutenant J Junior Grade Josh Hanno. He's uh, in, in flight training right now. Um, it's titled Envisioning a Multi-Role Future for the MQ-25. And this, this idea that the MQ-25 shouldn't just be an air refueling platform has been mentioned by others. Not just, you know, it, the JG is not the first to come up with this idea that perhaps this unmanned refueling platform could do more. But what he does in this article that I think is uh, it was it won us over and our editorial board over is he looks at past naval aviation platforms that were built for one uh, mission, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, ground attack. Uh, and that were expanded during the lifetime of those uh, of those aircraft to take on new missions and do different things. So he, he brings out the example of the Grumman AF Guardian, started as a torpedo bomber, but because uh, you know through some some uh, variants, it, it ended up doing uh, airborne ASW. Uh, there were two distinct variants that operated in a hunter-killer pair. Uh, he brings up the S3 Viking that started uh, as, a, as an anti-submarine warfare platform, expanded to anti-surface warfare platform, expanded into the, um, the ES3, which was a, a signals intelligence platform and had you know, a lot of different capability. Um, and then another example he gives is the Douglas A3 Sky Warrior, which was intended as a heavy bomber to carry nuclear weapons. Um, and later turned out to be um, a, a tanker and an electronic countermeasures aircraft. So Lieutenant Hanno, you know, points to the MQ-25 and says, hey, it's going to do some great things in terms of extending the range of the air wing. But there are lessons learned from the past of how naval aviation has adapted platforms to do other missions than what they were originally designed to. So I love that combination of history, particularly a, a JG, looking back at history, looking back you know, 50, 60 years over naval aviation adaptation and saying, here's some ways that, or some, some concrete lessons 
and, and programs that naval aviation today could apply to um, taking the MQ-25 forward from being an, an air refueler to being able to do a multitude of different things, including, you know, ISR, including perhaps, uh, you know, an ASUW weapon or an ASW uh, platform in terms of dropping sensors and things. So it, great piece. And, uh, and I, I congratulate uh, Lieutenant Hanno for that. Yes, excellent. The agility of thinking that is required, the time it takes to get a program funded, built, you know, fielded into the fleet. It, it, the world changes in that time frame. And, you, you know, the Navy and all the services need to be able to uh, adapt the platforms they have that are in the program to different missions. Exactly. What was the next one you wanted to discuss? Um, I just want to mention quickly, uh, again, our heritage piece this month. Um, in, as we've mentioned in past podcasts, we're running an extra section in proceedings, an extra eight-page section for the entire uh, year of 2023, all 12 issues. Uh, because this is the aviation issue, this is an aviation heritage article. We did a 100-year uh, anniversary of carrier aviation article last September, so because we did that, which is very similar to these uh, heritage pieces, we chose to focus this article on non-carrier aviation. And our eminence grise of uh, proceedings, Dennis Clift, went into the uh, stacks, as they say, um, and uh, dug out some awesome uh, pieces. Uh, you could get lost in there. I could do that all day and not do my job. Um, but uh, And uh, it starts with uh, some of the very... Um, out of the box thinking about aviation very early in the early years, uh, out of the box. And I would say, I would dare say quite dangerous um, uh, experimentation they did uh, in the early days, including man kites. If you don't know what a man kite is, uh, open the, uh, <laughs> open this article to the first page and stand by to be horrified that anybody actually volunteered to do this um, off the back of a ship hanging yeah. from a kite. Think, um, yeah, think think hang glider, uh, you know. So an aerial observer platform where you strap a person to a kite or a succession of kites and trail them behind uh, behind a ship to look over the horizon. But yeah, it's a hair raising story for sure. Yeah, and then you know the uh, the the um, uh, Martin Mariner PBMs, the flying boats, um, and kind of our experience with that. A lot of experience, and many people, I mean, don't know this, but the U.S. Navy had zeppelins, had um, um, had lighter than air um, airships um, that were actually commissioned as USS ships, including, for example, the USS Los Angeles, um, that were used actually to, to pretty good effect uh, toward the end of World War One, and then uh, later, um, and then getting into the '40s, you start seeing you know, some experimentation with helicopters. Okay. This was not really the Korean war was the first uh, time that the U S Navy used helicopters in, in kind of an operational role where helicopters would go back and forth and, and, and do medevacs from Korea out to the ship, out to the hospital ships. This was a very new thing in the 1950s. And a little bit later, um, uh, the exploration of uh, the South pole uh, was uh, very heavily uh, naval aviation was very heavily involved with that. Um, ski landing um, 
planes that could land on the ice uh, down in Antarctica as they started to build um, McMurdo Station and some of the other um, bases down there, I guess bases or stations um, to do Antarctic exploration. Um, and then rounding out with like uh, maritime patrol, starting with uh, the P-3's predecessor and then altering the P-3, which had a long, long life in the Navy, um, 40 plus years, um, almost 50 years really. Um, and um, until the P-8 came online around uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago, it started being fielded into the, into the Navy. Yeah, it's nice to highlight some things, and, and you, you'll see some, even for our carrier aviators, uh, who, are, of course, are very focused on, you know, catapults and arrested, arrested landings, uh, they'll, they'll recognize some names that, are, that have been important in their careers. So you'll see uh, Moffat, for example, Admiral Moffat, there was Moffat Field for a long time. You see Softly. Uh, after which uh, there's a softly field down in uh, Pensacola and uh, a few other uh, notable names in the history of naval aviation, people that went on to become admirals, uh, but you get to see what they did when they were ensigns and JGs and lieutenants, uh, some of the daring do uh, of the early days of naval aviation. Pretty neat stuff, yeah. Uh, one more aviation article I want to talk about, and I want to have this author on the podcast in July, so I'm not going to steal too much of his thunder, but uh, the special by uh, Captain Tal Manville, uh, and it's called The Lightning Carrier Isn't Either. So Tal is a uh, passionate advocate for aircraft carriers, for CVNs, and uh, he spent most of his career as an as an engineering duty officer. He was engineering officer on the USS America CV-66, not the current LHA. Um, he was uh, program manager for several refits of, uh, of CVNs, and he was the first program manager, early program manager for the Ford class carrier. Uh, and for, uh, Tal is a guy who every time he hear, hears the term lightning carrier, it... Uh, it makes it yeah, it makes it, it it sends him into conniptions, but this this article is worth a read because it it does ground you in some naval architecture facts, right? Uh, in terms of the size of a ship, the capabilities it brings, the layout and the design of the ship, what sea state does, what magazine capacity does. So, for example, he points out that. Um, some people have used an example that the uh, USS Franklin CV-13 uh, in World War II, you know, was pummeled in, in uh, Japanese attacks and, uh, you know, was not sunk. And so that size of a ship, 45,000 tons or so, is, is very, very survivable and that we could uh, build these sort of medium-sized carriers, non-nuclear powered, and that they could be effective or maybe two of them could be as effective as a CVN. But Tal points out that the LHA, LHD class of today's Navy, while it might be about the same displacement, because of the way it's designed with a well deck uh, or with um, uh, the ability to move Marines uh, you know, in and out of the ship quickly, it doesn't have the internal design features and survivability features that even the World War II Franklin-class ship had. And uh, Tal has brought this up in the past, but the another thing that um, 
that you know folks will, will look back on during uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, the USS Bataan, there was a um, <clears throat> quote unquote Harrier carrier proof of concept uh, where the Bataan was, uh, you know, and its Harriers were conducting, you know, strike operations uh, into Iraq as were, uh, you know, the CVNs and their carrier air wings. But Tal brings out the point, and, and I wasn't aware of this, that in order to conduct those strike operations, the Bataan, because it has a, a much, much smaller um, magazine on board for, for airborne munitions, they were, they were essentially doing this Rube Goldberg sort of operation to bring munitions over to the Bataan using LCACs and using, um, I, I think it was even LCUs, from the, uh, uh, the ammunition ship and bringing them in through the uh, through the well deck, and then moving them through the ship, so it not like being on a on a CVN where you've got massive magazines more than ten times the size of the magazines on a, on a on the baton or LHA LHD, and moving them up to the flight deck, you know, using elevators. But in this case, they were having to refuel rearm almost every day using LCACs to bring ammunitions over from another ship and then sort of hand moving them up to the flight deck on the baton to arm the, the Harriers. So those are some really interesting points when we, we talk about or, you know, folks talk about, well, we should just build more lightning carriers that are the LHA, LHD class and put the F-35s. Great capability, but it does not bring the strike capability, the capacity, nor the survivability that you might think it, it, it would accompany it. So anyway, it's a great piece, and I want to have Tal on the show to, to explain that in, in more detail In because Tal's a naval architect. He taught naval architecture at the Naval Academy after he retired. Uh, he's a great guy, lives in Annapolis, and he's, a, he's cool. always fun to talk to. He's very, very, very passionate about this topic, but that's a good one for our uh, aviation issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, let me just touch on a couple of uh, professional notes in the July issue. So uh, to remind our readers, the professional note, um, which, by the way, have been in proceedings. You can go back to 1880, 1878, whatever, the early years and see professional notes in there. So this is a column that has been running for uh, the duration of the 150 years uh, publishing proceedings. They, the professional notes are a little shorter generally a little more technical, which can make them hard to edit, quite frankly, and uh, um, and a little more focused on a more discrete topic than a broader feature. So that's what they are. We generally run three um, per issue, with the exception of the uh, Naval Review issue in March, where we don't run them. So the uh, there's three, in, obviously, in July, but let me just point out the first uh, one I want to talk about is by Chief Warrant Officer uh, Joshua Emery um, about cryptologic warfare officers can no longer be generalists. So for those following along with the informa Navy information warfare uh, story from its uh, kind of incarnation in the late 2000s to then becoming a warfare community and where it's going now, it's, uh, it's I would say, uh, struggled um, be to find the sweet spot between this tension between specialism specialization and generalists, uh, but not just for cryptolo cryptologic warfare officers, but for the other communities as well. 
Um, I will hold any opinion on whether what I think on it, but I, I will say that uh, that jo- uh, Josh Emery has uh, made a pretty strong case that um, the, the cryptologic warfare officers can't just be um, you know broad across the different CW disciplines. They need to be focused not just in, in more in one dis- uh, discipline, but also in one region. It's more of a regional specialization. You, you to know the the uh, Cryptologic world from the Indo-Pacific is is a, is a skill that takes a long time to develop and is valued by uh, the uh, warfare commanders that are supported by cryptologic warfare. All right, the other um, uh, professional note is by uh, commanders Dave Begay and Courtney Hurt. Courtney Styles Hurt goes by Styles. Uh, Styles was also a fellow for the Naval Institute and the Center for Strategic International Studies. Uh, in this in the past year and they wrote a good piece about um maritime isr weapons and tactics instructors so as our listeners know i think that the weapons and tactics instructor program has um expanded uh since it started i don't know how many years ago in the surface warfare community and the the idea here is that a you know uh, junior officers with strong records uh will then do a tour where they really get into the uh, nitty gritty of the tactical uh, applications of their discipline. Uh, they'll get smart on it and then they'll be used to uh, mentor and train uh, other junior officers and other uh, senior enlisted, et cetera, at, at sea um, in their issues. It's, fit, it's been successful. I mean, success breeds success and it's uh, migrated to different communities. Um, it's kind of like Top Gun, which actually probably precedes all of it, which is uh, yeah. really, was- yeah. That's where so, it started, really. It started yeah. with naval aviation and, and Top Gun, and then that became the WTI program, the, the Strike Fighter Weapons, the SWIFT yeah. program, right? Yeah. So um, this version, this animal, this maritime ISR, are the uh, uh, the officers that can, and they come from different communities. They all, some are aviators, some are intelligence officers, and, and so they, they they kind of bring them together. But they they get really smart on all the different kind of tactical ISR programs that the Navy has, both manned and unmanned, et cetera, and how to, you know, capture that information and integrate it operationally into the, into the fight. So it's a, it's a nice piece. Yeah. If you haven't heard that uh, acronym MISER, that's how, you know, the, the maritime ISR WTI program, but they're, they, they, they call themselves the MISERs. Yep. Yep. Uh, last one, because we're running out of time, but I wanted to mention uh, a, a very weighty, heavy topic that's in the July issue that we, the staff, and also our editorial board uh, went round around on uh, for a number of months. And the article is our American Sea Power Project article this month uh, by Commander Retired Paul Giara, and it's titled, The Navy Needs Tactical Nuclear Weapons Again. And uh, for folks of, of our age uh, who were, you know, ensigns and JGs at the uh, end of the Cold War, uh, will remember that uh, the Navy on aircraft carriers and on surface ships and submarines, we had tactical nuclear weapons. We had uh, air-dropped nuclear weapons on our, you know, strike fighters and our uh, attack aircraft. We had uh, nuclear ASROC on surface ships and submarines. We had uh, you know, nuclear capable uh, tomahawks. And then when the Cold War ended and the, the Soviet Navy went home and sort of rusted at the pier for a while, um, the United States decided unilaterally to disarm and get rid of the tactical nuclear weapons in our Navy. And so by the early 1990s, those capabilities were 
largely gone from the from the Navy. And so the you know Navy nuclear weapons at sea now are, I, I think I want to say 100 percent the um, uh, the sub-launched ballistic missiles, the strategic nuclear triad uh, uh, arm. But in the last couple of years, our adversaries have been demonstrating that they are not out of the tactical nuclear weapons uh, business at sea. And so the Russians really never got rid of that capability, although they you know, had, had kept it at home and probably uh, underplayed it a lot. The Chinese are rapidly building their nuclear arsenal. Uh, North Korea, of course, we on an almost weekly basis, we see North Korean uh, ICBM and SLBM tests, and we we hear a lot about uh, North Korea continuing to march forward in uh, developing its uh, its nuclear weapons capabilities. And so, uh, Commander Giara argues that it's time for, unfortunately, it, it's time for the Navy to bring back tactical nuclear weapons. And he cites a couple of experts, including the former U.S. Strategic Command Commander Admiral Charles Richard, who's now retired. But Admiral Richard, when he was the STRATCOM commander, uh, was pretty public about the fact that if you don't have uh, tactical nuclear weapons, you're missing rungs in your ladder of um, both escalation and de-escalation control. So if your only answer to an adversary nuclear weapon capability is either uh, some pretty exquisite exquisite conventional weapons capabilities or strategic nuclear weapons. In other words, ICBMs coming from Montana or from, you know, ballistic missile submarines, you, you're missing out on uh, capabilities that uh, can help you control a situation or control or de-escalate or control escalation. That's the argument. Um, and this is, you know, a lot of people will, will uh, I think, debate on this. There will probably be some pretty heated pushback on this article, uh, but we decided that uh, was, this was an important topic to have in the magazine to start the conversation again, because for the past 30 or 30 plus years now, the U.S. Navy has been out of the tactical nuclear weapons business, and yet our adversaries are moving in that direction at a, a pace, I would just say a, a, a pace. So important topic. Uh, I'm sure it's going to get some pushback. I'm sure we're going to get some letters on it. It'll be interesting to see how that uh, debate plays out. But um, I, I encourage people to read it, really think about it, um, and you know, see where you come out on the on the debate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But that's uh, some of the highlights of the July aviation issue of proceedings. It'll be posted online later today. So that today is uh, June 30th. So that that issue will go up live this afternoon. It'll be live over the 4th of July weekend. Uh, until next episode, I wish everybody a happy, healthy, fun, safe uh, Independence Day. Go USA. And uh, to all, the, all the, the new plebes at the Naval Academy, work hard. Row, row hard, young women, men and women. And yeah. It's all, all going to be good. We'll see you at the end of August uh, or, or end of July and early August when you come over to Beach Hall uh, for your Naval Institute briefings. Thanks for being on the show today, Bill. All right. Thanks. And, and thanks to Heather Legg, our uh, our producer, who makes all the magic happen behind the scene here. Yes. So until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.